Well, how about I pray to get us started? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that we heard it read. We pray that the Holy Spirit may come to rest on all of us to hear, take in, learn and change us. Help me to speak your words in love and truth. And I ask this in the power of Jesus. Amen. So, did you know that it was a year ago today that lockdown was announced? Oh, who can remember that? It was devastating. A change of plans for everyone. Uh, I found for myself, I was really devastated because I was going to run Winter Beach Camp last year and then that got cancelled, unfortunately. But it looks like it's going ahead for Matt and I'm really um, happy for those guys and I'm praying that nothing will stop it. Nothing. Um, And, you know, some of us thought it was just going to be two weeks, but, you know, little did we know it was going to go on a lot longer. And then later in the year, we saw that things started to open up again, but then, you know, we had a resurgence of the Omicron variant, and then it was just like, whoa, is anything going to get better? And maybe some of us had the question or the thought of, well, what's the plan here, God? What's the plan for the future? And so today, I want to talk about God's plan for the future. You see, the Israelites in this chapter, there's this tension of how are they going to be faithful to God if they've got a long history of doing the wrong thing, of not choosing God. And so last week, Tim spoke to us about the blessings and curses on God's people, the blessings that they would receive for obedience and the curses for their disobedience. Tim reminded us that it was a problem of the heart for these Israelites. And now we see in this chapter, in chapter 30, that the Israelites are, again, they're going to fail again as they get the promised land. So what's the point? What's the plan, God? Is there any point in telling these guys about obeying if it looks like they're going to fail? So as we look at this chapter and other passages, we're going to find answers on, well, what is God's plan for humanity? So firstly, God's plan for humanity is his expectation of human failure in obeying God. Have a look at some of these verses on the screen. I'm not going to read all of them. But firstly, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you. So right there, straight away, Moses tells us they are going to fail because, yes, there's blessings that are going to happen, but also when the curses come because they've disobeyed. I'm sure some of the Israelites hearing this at the time were probably thinking, wait a second, like, wasn't Moses just saying that if we obey... We'll be blessed. We haven't done anything yet. And we see phrases up there like dispersed among the nations, scattered, spread out. And this is alluding to the future for them of the exile and post-exile times for the Israelites. That they will be in the land, but their unfaithfulness to God will cause God to send armies and to scatter these people. And the evidence of this passage tells us that there is an expectation of human failure. Human failure. Sin. This is a pattern of humanity. It ties right back to creation at the fall. That desire to rebel, the desire for our own autonomy, the desire to be our own gods. Though humanity has a pattern of disobedience, God, on the other hand, has a pattern of faithfulness, mercy and compassion. We see that though humanity is expected to fail, we see that God is expecting to step in and do something to save them. Secondly, we see in Deuteronomy 30 that God's redemptive love in bringing them back 
And we've seen some of the verses up on the screen, like when you and your children will return, that they'll be given a heart, restore the fortunes, God's going to have compassion and gather them back. We see that God will enable the Israelites to return and obey God with all their heart. And we see there's going to be a regathering post-exile much later on in the Old Testament. In verses 4 to 5, Moses says, you know, no matter how far you are apart from each other, no, no matter how far I've banished you, how separate and how hopeless this seems, I will bring you back together again. And you're not just going to be back together anywhere. You'll be back in your promised land that your ancestors were promised. And you will have your offspring and your children will grow. You're only going to get bigger even when it seems like you're going to die off. You will flourish. And I want to stress that for all this to take place, for the Israelites to get back to where they need to, it's not the goodness of the Israelites. It's not how good they've done things. It's all God. Take a look at the previous chapter. It will be up on the screen, but in chapter 29, verses 2 to 4, we see this sort of this little summary of God saying, you know, you have seen all the things that I have done for you, all the wonders, with your own eyes. And then verse 4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. You Israelites have seen many wonders, but you are blind. There is a veil over your eyes. The Lord has not given you the ability to see, to understand, as their hearts are so hard and stubborn. But God's goal is to bring the people back together, and that's the ultimate plan. And we see that God will bring his people back for heart surgery, but not the kind of heart surgery that you think. Thirdly, God's plan, his heart surgery if I should say, his final plan of circumcision and Tim said in last week, you know, again, it's that matter of the heart for these guys. They were supposed to love the Lord their God of all their heart. The Israelites are eagerly awaiting to have a perfect relationship with God. They constantly struggle to do their part in the relationship being fully obedient. Hence why God reveals through this key verse, this is our verse of the day. It says here, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. For God to circumcise their heart, it's thinking back to the idea of what circumcision meant for these guys. It was the mark of their identity as God's people, a mark of obedience. As the heart of the Israelites, unfortunately, was hard, stubborn, selfish. Heart surgery is needed, and they cannot perform this heart surgery on themselves. God is going to create a heart in the Israelites that will obey, love the Lord with all their heart and soul. They will obey in such a way that they're going to live and prosper and flourish. This verse is sort of describing a relationship with God that is so secure, so perfect, that really, this is a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. What Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection is beautifully captured in Colossians 2. And that circumcision is required for humanity, but it cannot be done by human hands, it's done by Jesus. You know, our lives were once ruled by sin and destined for destruction. However, Christ has changed that. 
You'll see some of the Colossian passage up on the screen there. And one of the big things I want to highlight is, you know, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. We see that we've got this ultimate reality of forgiveness. He's wiped the, the slate clean for us, nailing all our sin to the cross and disarming, disarming the power of sin. We see that that final idea of circumcision is found in Christ, but this circumcision isn't talking about a medical surgery version of it. This is a spiritual intervention from God. You know, again, sin is what stops us having that perfect relationship with God, a perfect and secure one. But Jesus makes it possible for us to have that relationship. Jesus did that by laying down his own life for us. Jesus took our sin. He became sin. He became the worst of the worst so that we may be the best of the best to God. Every time that we have forgotten God, every time that we have tried to just rely on ourselves or our own effort and strength, Jesus takes all our shortcomings, every time that we've used the word I, and he nails it to the cross, disarming that power to define you anymore. I love that passage in Luke's Gospel where Jesus is on the cross and there's the two criminals either side of him. And one criminal says, you know, if you really are the Son of God, just save yourself and then save us. But there's another criminal. And the way he reacts tells you just how much he realises he's a sinner and just how much he needs Jesus. He says to the other guy, don't you fear God? We, we are getting what we deserve. We deserve to be on this cross. But as for this man, he has done nothing wrong. And we need to have this attitude like that man on the cross. The attitude to that respect and love and sacrifice that Jesus has made. And again, I want to, it's just acknowledging Jesus, he did not deserve to take our place on that cross. When we're repentant and we acknowledge this, Jesus promised that man on the cross, today I will tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. That would have been the most life-saving words for that man in that moment. And the same can be said to us, having that same attitude towards Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for us. Because of the work of Jesus and God's redeeming love will change the status of his people in this chapter. We see that, yes, there will be a nation, but they won't just be a nation, they're going to be God's people, his children. And we see that ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament, where God uses that language, that we have been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. I love that idea of thinking, we are God's kids. That's really special. We are his kids. We don't have a distant God. We have a God that is very much near. And the Israelites got to experience that, but also those times that they forgot that. And that's why that passage is up there to, to reveal to us, to show us how sometimes we think it's out of reach. Now I'm commanding you today, it's not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you don't have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us. And sort of highlighting this idea in this passage that we sort of think that having that relationship with God and, and having his word is beyond us. We're just these lowly human beings, but actually it's not. Moses is reminding the Israelites that to have a relationship with God isn't beyond them. God isn't distant. Rather, he's very much near. Even in the past for these guys, as they were 
Thinking about the Exodus generation, they had God with them, and he represented that as the pillar of cloud during the day and the, and the pillar of fire during night. And now today, we know that Jesus fulfills all this in John 1, as we think, you know, he's God in the flesh, the word becomes flesh. It's very much near, it's very much present, and we have access. God is not far off. We might think like we are so far away from him sometimes, but he is not far off. Did you know that you can have a perfect, secure and loving relationship with Jesus right now? Have you made your peace with Jesus? Have you repented? Have we actually said sorry to God for every time that we have failed? There's a line in Deuteronomy I haven't put up on the screen. It says, like, God will delight in the Israelites and they will prosper. I mean, do you think in the past week, would God delight in what you've done? Maybe in the past 10 years, maybe your whole life, would you say, God delights in me? In our own effort, no. But if we have accepted Jesus into our life, he does delight in us. We are delightable before God. So therefore, have you accepted Jesus into your life? Some of us have accepted Jesus into our heart, into our life, and that is awesome. So what are we going to do about this? What does that look like? Well, that brings me to my last point, which is choosing Christ over death. And what I mean by that is in this last chapter, towards the, sorry, the end of the last section, we see that there's these two choices here. They're very important, they're very big consequences. And we see that in this chapter, God is making all the moves to bring these Israelites into a perfect relationship. Perhaps some of these Israelites are hearing this and they're probably thinking, right, so we get to go into the promised land, we're going to sin and stuff up, then we're going to get scattered, then you're going to change us and bring us back to you. Should I bother doing anything? If we're not careful, we could read that passage and think, oh, well, I don't have to do anything to be saved. Everyone's going to heaven, right? But that theology, that's wrong. It's called universalism. And the Bible reveals that though Jesus saves us, we still have a responsibility of how we respond to this. We see in verses 19 to 20 that, you know, there's this choice set before us. Life or death, blessings or curses. For the Israelites, that was very imminent. And for us, and we see very clearly that God... He helps us to make this choice, to respond, and to be able to do this. And I love in verse 19, towards the end, it says, Now choose life, so that you and your children may live. It's not a, God's not being passive, saying, well, it's either one or the other. He also actually wants us to be in a relationship with him. And for us today, we see that it's all fulfilled in Christ, that we choose faith in Jesus, or we... Choose death. It's pretty obvious what we would choose, right? I mean, we would choose to live. But the Israelites had struggled to choose this. They had struggled to chosen God in the past. They're going to struggle again. I mean, the instruction of their choose life or choose death, it's there because people have not chosen life. And God wants us to choose life not just to live and be with him, but also to actually be a light to other people. We can be tempted to choose death, even though that sounds really stupid and obvious. We can actually be tempted to choose death because 
it comes across in ways that doesn't look like we're choosing death. You see, Satan, his native tongue is to lie, and he will change the whole name and title of it. Instead of saying, choose death, he's probably scribbled it out and said, okay, maybe it's choose yourself. Choose whatever makes you happy. Choose the freedom of just define your own life by your own terms. Choose wealth and security. Choose a successful career. Choose acceptance of your family and peers no matter the cost, even if it might mean denying things that you really value, maybe even denying Jesus sometimes. You see, if you choose death, yeah, we don't want to choose that, but Satan presents it in much more tempting ways. But if we have chosen life, it's not just to just choose Jesus, it's to follow him. Verse 20, love the Lord your God, and here's the key line, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. To choose life is to listen to God. And can I say, I've just been really encouraged today by this, the recommissioning of the Jameers and how, you know, I'm just seeing these guys have chosen Jesus and they're listening to God going, going back to Arnhem Land. You know, I'm not trying to put these guys on a pedestal and say, look how awesome they are. I'm sure 10 years ago, if you asked them, were you going to go to Arnhem Land? They're probably like, no way. They probably, I bet you didn't imagine you were going to have a recommissioning service to go back to the mission field. They are listening to God, not because of how amazing they are, it's because of how amazing Jesus is. And they can do this in his strength. So what are you going to do to help you listen to Jesus? Because we have so many competing voices in this world. What are you going to do to help you listen to Jesus? Coming to church is a great start, isn't it? And it's not the building. It's actually being with God's people, you and I, actually talking, reading the Bible, and hearing God speak through you guys, through our actions, through our hands and feet. To choose Jesus and to follow him all the days of your life, it's a similar task that was given to the Israelites. They were, back then they had to choose circumcision and obedience or death. For us, choose Christ or death. The Israelites, they're going to fail in their own effort, and they did. We will fail in our own effort because it's our own effort. But we can actually overcome this and succeed with Jesus' help. Yes, there's going to be days that we'll fall short. We're going to stuff up. That's what we do with those stuff ups. We go back to God and say, I'm sorry. Help me get it right. I'd like to finish with a quote, as I know we're a little bit over time, um, from John Newton. He's very famous for composing Amazing Grace. What a song. And he had this great quote he said later on in life. And he said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great saviour. I am a great sinner, but I have a great saviour. What is God's plan for humanity for us? Verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. Friends, brothers and sisters, choose life. Choose Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in your mercy and love you continue to remain faithful to the Israelites and with your people now. I thank you that you have a plan to save us, to bring us into your family. 
Father, I pray that we will choose life. Choose the plan you have for humanity. That you give us a new heart in Jesus and help us to obey and live. I pray that you will be with all of us on our journey to choose you. And I pray for us, some of us who are are struggling with you, struggling in sin still. Maybe we've taken a, a back step. I pray, Lord, that you will be gracious to all of us. And we lift up all these people to you. Please help us to choose you and to remain in you. And I pray that we will listen to your voice and hold firm to you. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.